If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we'll read from John chapter 6. We'll read from verses 22 through 40. And what we are beginning today is Jesus' sermon on the bread of life. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus' sermon on the bread of life goes from John chapter 6, verse 22 through the end of the chapter in verse 71. And the sermon breaks down into three main sections. You have John chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. You see the effort of the crowd, which we will see today. Then you see the effect of the gospel in John chapter 6, verse 35 through 59. And then you see the effect of a sermon in John chapter 6, verses 59 through 71. And if you know this story, then you know that a lot of people walk away after the sermon, which we would say is probably the anti-Billy Graham sermon. Okay. So today, we will read the effects, or the effort of the crowd, beginning at verse 22. And then the next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except for one, and that Jesus had not entered in with his disciples into the boat, and that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're confused. There came other small boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking after Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you arrive? Verse 26. And then Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Not, be, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Verse 28. And therefore he said, therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So that they, then, they, then they said, What then do you do as a sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? That would be a maddening question if I was Jesus, because what has he done the whole time? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Lord, please always give us this bread. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not, never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Amen. Today I'd like to talk to you about a problem or an issue. Today I'd like to talk to you about the issue of spiritual consumerism. Today I'd like to speak with you about the issue of spiritual consumerism. Because when I look at 
the church culture at large of today's church landscape, I grow a bit squeamish or concerned because people often do not come to church to hear truth or to fellowship together or to worship God, but people can often come to church to have their bellies filled and their ears tickled. And the churches that do this best are packed to the rafters. Churches that satisfy consumers are sometimes the largest. I've heard of churches serving chicken biscuits on Sunday morning, which sounds nice about right now. Uh, (laughs) I'm getting a couple of amens on that one. Uh, I've heard of churches serving chicken biscuits and people from the street would just come in, grab a box, and leave. Uh, I heard of churches that buy a base basketball stadium and then convert it to the latest and greatest. But when Laura and I lived in Dallas, we lived in the consumer church capital of the world. Uh, one church spent $140 million on a renovation, and I'm not kidding. I heard of another church in the Dallas area that spent $2 million on a fish tank. That is true, and $80 million a month in maintenance. But the most impressive church in Dallas we called Preston World, because you parked and you felt like you were walking into Disney World as a church. Now, some of us may be saying, why is spiritual consumerism bad? Why is spiritual consumerism dangerous? Well, spiritual consumerism can lead us to think that the gospel is about us. That we are the star of the show in God's redemptive plan for mankind. But we are not the stars of God's gospel. We are the mere recipients of it. Jesus Christ is the star. Spiritual consumerism can lead us to elevate false teaching. Some of the biggest preachers in the world are those that appeal to consumers the best. But even more personally, especially as church like us, spiritual consumerism is probably not on the forefront of our mind, but spiritual consumerism, when we walk into these doors, can cause us to miss out. Because when we come to church and we think it's all about me, it's all about myself, then we look at the building, we look at the children's program, we look at the preacher's charisma, and we forego the fact that we, when we come here, we're not coming here for ourselves, but we should be coming here for other people and to worship God. Spiritual consumerism often blinds us to the truth. But if we are truly honest, if we really open up the safe of our hearts and of our minds, if we really look inside of our being, then we would realize each that we each struggle with this thought of spiritual consumers. And that when we walk in these doors, we oftentimes think, and I do the same thing, that we oftentimes think that life is about me, about my preferences and my desires. But that is not the case at all. The issue of spiritual consumerism is what I see in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. We see the crowds, and they are starving for what they want, and they completely miss the point of the sermon of the sermon of the bread. So if you have your Bible, come back with me to John chapter 6. And today, we ask the question, or we answer the question, how do we remedy, or how can we work on our struggle with spiritual consumerism? Today we see the problem in verses 22 through 34, and then we see the solution to spiritual consumerism in verses 35 through 40. And so if you have your Bible, once again, turn in those. 
And, and yet, in order to really interpret or in order to really understand what is really going on in this passage, we must be mindful of the context of our passage. Because where are we in the Gospel of John? We are in the middle of the discourse of Jesus proving his deity. That basically from John chapter 5 through at least John chapter 8, if not a little bit further, that Jesus in this massive section of the Gospel of John is proving for us that Jesus is God. Now, if my sermons as of late have sounded uh, the same, well, that there's a reason for it, is because John is proving one point in all of it, that Jesus is fully divine. John chapter 5, Jesus heals, heals the man proving He is God. Jesus proves He is God by saying that He is of the sameness with the Father. Jesus proves that He is God with the four witnesses at the end of John chapter 5. Jesus proves in John chapter 6 verses 1 through 15 that He is God by taking five loaves and two fish, by taking what I say a, a happy meal and multiplying to feed 20,000 people. And then last week, what did we see? That Jesus again proves that He is God, but something different What we saw last week is that Jesus proves that He is the Creator God, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, by calming the seas on the Sea of Galilee for His disciples. So we pick up kind of right there. And and the question I have is, but why? You know, if, if you've read the Gospel of John before, then you know it's a bit monotonous. Right? I mean, it's saying, okay, which is not a preacher's friend, by the way, okay, monotony's not this guy's friend, but I try to, anyway, moving on. So, but why does John, again and again and again and again and again, prove that Jesus is God, prove that Jesus is my, talk about faith in Jesus Christ leading to eternal life? Why does he do it? It all comes back to John's purpose. What is John's purpose in arranging the stories and the details and the words of the Gospel of John? John has one purpose in mind. That all of the stories, all of the words, all of the details point to John's singular purpose. And what is that? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. If you haven't highlighted this, this is the outline of the entire Gospel of John. It says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things have been written. But these things that He has compiled have been written so that, in order that, for the purpose of, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Think about the Gospel of John to this point. What did Jesus prove in John chapter 1 verse through John chapter 4? He proved that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in John chapter 5 and on, Jesus proves that He is the Son of God or that He is fully divine. And all of this leads to the conclusion that we should believe in Him and we have life in His name. So today we pick up in John chapter 6 verse 22 and we are the next day. The feeding of the 5,000 just happened. Jesus just walked on the water the night before. And that is where we pick up in verse 22. Notice it with me. Notice the first three words if you have your English text. It says, the next day, 24 hours later. The next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boat there except for one. Why is that important? And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 
And there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So what did they do? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you arrive? Or where did you go? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What is, what is the problem here? The problem, number one, is that the crowds are bidding for consumerism. If you have your notes, that is the first blank. The crowds are bidding for consumerism. The crowds were filled, and then in verse 26, what does Jesus say to them again? He says this, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What does that mean? They are filled the previous day, and why do they stalk Jesus? Why do they hunt him down? They don't care anything about his message. They don't care about the fact that Jesus has proved he is God. They don't care that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They don't care that he's the Messiah. They don't care that he is the Christ. They don't care even that he is truly the King of Israel. What are they in for? They follow Jesus. They're trying to find him to have their bellies filled. All they care about is themselves. They don't care about what Jesus' message even is. Are we the same? The first step they say to solve a problem is admitting that there is one. Are you and I like the crowds? Maybe you follow Jesus out of obligation or for the sake of appearances... Maybe we come to church here to hear a good Bible message. Maybe you claim the cross of Christ because you were raised that way. Or maybe you follow Jesus to get something from God. Or maybe some of us have never even thought about the question is why do we even follow Jesus Christ? I can tell you why the crowds follow Jesus Christ. It's because they are in it for themselves. And here in verses 22 to 26, the crowds are bidding for consumerism. But I want you to notice some details. And I kind of pointed them out a little bit already. But I want you to notice some details. Look at the extent that they take to follow Jesus or to have their bellies filled. They probably burn more calories trying to find Jesus than they ate the previous day. Okay, notice verse 22. It says, The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boats, no other small boat there except for one. So what, are the, what does that mean? So the crowds on the other side of the sea where they were fed the day before see that there is one boat remaining. So what does that mean? That there were two boats the previous day and they know that Jesus sent his disciples onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they know that Jesus was on the mountain to pray but his boat is still there. So they're a little bit confused. They're saying, where is Jesus? His boat is still here but he is not. But then notice the second detail. They row across the Sea of Galilee to find him. Now, how far across is the Sea of Galilee? We talked about that last week. It is eight miles across. So they row eight miles, not because they believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world, but because they're in it for themselves. They want their bellies filled. 
And then they hunt him down once they cross in verse 25. We would say in modern culture that they are stalking Jesus. Okay. They are working, they are working so hard to find Jesus, but they want nothing to do with him. All they want is that their bellies are full. All they want is to feel better about themselves, to satisfy their physical needs, and they have no concern for the gospel of Christ. And that is what Jesus says in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The work of, of the crowds reminds me of someone who has worked their whole life and has nothing saved for retirement. When they were working hard, they should have seen the reality that old age is coming and I see the crowds the same here, that they are working so hard. They are rowing eight miles across the Sea of Galilee. They get out of their boat across the Sea of Galilee, and they find Jesus Christ, and they want nothing to do with Him. They don't see the reality. All they want is more food. They don't see that Jesus really isn't there to satisfy their hunger. He is there to quench their souls and their spiritual thirst. Problem number one is that the crowds are bidding for consumerism. They're working so hard, but they do not see the reality. But then notice the second problem. Notice verse 27 to 29. It says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures through eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said, And what shall we do? Notice, what, <laughs> what shall we do so that we may work the works of God. What are they concerned with? And they're not only concerned with having their bellies filled, but they're still confused on how to attain salvation. They still think it's works-based. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God. Highlight that phrase. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That God has worked to redeem mankind. That there is nothing that they can do to earn it. But that God, the work of God in the history of mankind is to fulfill the redemption of all. But then notice their real root issue. Verse 30. It says, So they said to Him, What then... What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? And what work do you perform? Our fathers ate of the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, you gave them bread out of heaven. Verse 32, Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. What is the problem here? Problem number two, problem number one is that they are bidding for consumerism. They are working to have their bellies filled. And they don't care about what Jesus truly stands for. But then the problem here is that they are blinded by consumerism. Problem number two is that they are blinded by consumerism. They are so focused on filling their physical bellies, on getting out of Jesus something that they fail to see the message that Jesus has. And when I read... Uh, it's, I'm saying, it's a good thing that I am not Jesus when I read verse 30. First off, it's good because I couldn't save anybody because I'm vastly imperfect. But the second thing is when, you, when, they, when I hear verse 30, just look at it again. 
So the crowd said, And what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? <laughs> What's the irony here? That they are probably still full from the bread and the fish from the day before. That there was so much food that Jesus made that there were 12 baskets left over. That this is the day after Thanksgiving, okay? We don't eat for four days after Thanksgiving, right? Because we're stuffed full. And so the people here are saying, Jesus, what sign did you perform? And Jesus, what? I just performed a sign. I just walked across the Sea of Galilee. My boat is on the other side of the sea. I walked across. What more do you people want? Jesus just 24 hours ago feed, fed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And I can just imagine the exhaustion that Jesus has when they ask him for a sign and he is probably saying, well, you are still full from the sign that I performed yesterday. Their response in verse 30 reminds me of when I tell my two-year-old daughter, Olivia, not to dump her juice out on the carpet for the hundredth time, right? And the hundredth time, what do I do? I warn her, I discipline her, and then I hand her the next juice box, and guess what she does? She turns it upside down and she squeezes it onto the ground. It's absolutely maddening. Jesus has proven again and again and again and again. And not only is he the Christ, the Messiah, but now that he is fully divine and they still cannot understand it. But what's blinding them specifically is consumerism. But then notice what's really blinding them in verse 33 and 34. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. What blinds them to the truth that Jesus is God, the Savior of the world, what blinds them to the truth is that they value themselves more than Jesus. That they are in it for what they can get from God and not what has been given to them by God. They're so consumed with what they can get out of Jesus that they fail to see what God has given to them, which is the gospel, which is eternal life, that if they would believe in Him, not only would their bellies probably be full, but that their souls would be satisfied and would be saved. They are blinded by consumerism. They are blinded by the fact that they are placing I themselves over Jesus Christ. My first point today is to admit to consumerism. They say the first step to solving a problem is admitting that we have one. And if we truly boil down and look in the safe of our minds and of our spirit, we would all realize that we each struggle with the issue of spiritual consumer, of placing I above Jesus Christ. But then notice the solution to the issue Verse 35 says this, And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, but he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet have not believed. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who gives to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, and not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who believes the Son believes in Him and will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. What's the issue? In John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40, that the crowds are bidding for consumerism, they're blinded by consumerism because they're focused on themselves far more than they're concerned about anybody else or even the message of Jesus Christ. And then the only solution that they have for this spiritual consumerism is what? Is my third point, the solution is, is believing in Christ. Believing in Christ Jesus. The why... Why is believing in Jesus the solution to spiritual consumerism? Why is trusting in Jesus, I said it that way, very strategically, why is trusting in Jesus in our Christian life the solution to spiritual consumerism? Notice what I just said. Trusting in Christ. When we believe, when we have faith in Him, what are we realizing? We are placing Him on the throne above ourselves. But when we are consumed for ourselves, what do we do? We put I on the throne and we say, Jesus, go away. When we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have to make a strategic decision to put Him as the leader of our lives and we place ourselves as second. And notice what Jesus says in verse 35. He affirms this. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus did not come to feed our bellies. Jesus did not come to bless us with earthly possessions, despite what people may say. Jesus did not come to be a magic genie that we rub to get what we want. Or Jesus did not come to make us feel a little bit better about our sin. Jesus came to reveal to us the truth that we aren't good, that we aren't saints, that we aren't good people, but that we are in desperate need of salvation. Jesus came to satisfy the souls of mankind. He did not come just to give us whatever we wanted. But if you notice here, once again, Jesus, and I'm going to talk about this probably for the next few chapters, You notice here in the phrase, in verse 35, he says what? He says, I am the bread of life. That word, those two words, I am, is the same words earlier in John chapter 6 and also in John chapter 4. What is he really saying? That word I am is ego amy. I, I am the bread of life. What is he really saying to the crowds for the very first time? He is saying that he is Yahweh, that he is Jehovah, that he is the covenant-keeping God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you probably know that there, are, there is a word that is in all capital letters throughout the Old Testament. is the word Lord, L-O-R-D. What does that tell you? It tells you that the Hebrew word behind that is the word Yahweh. So when Jesus says that I am the bread of life, what is he really saying to his Jewish audience who are the crowds standing right there for the very first time? Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 35, he is telling publicly to the crowds that he is Yahweh. He is all caps Lord in the Old Testament. But once again, they care nothing for Jesus' message. They care nothing for the gospel. They care nothing about following him to the ends of the earth. They care nothing about denying themselves, taking up the cross and following him. They care about what they can get from God and they forego what God has given to them and what they can give in return. My second point today is to admit to spiritual consumerism and believe in Christ. But what is the greatest enemy of faith? 
in Jesus Christ. We see it here. I'll say it the opposite. It is thinking that we are more important than God. Placing I above Him. Because when we place I above Him, we try to earn our way to heaven. Just like they did. What works do we have to do in order to gain eternal life? That when we think that we are good enough, we place I above Him, then we don't submit to the gospel, but we think and we try to earn our way to heaven. When we place I above Him, how do we pray? We pray for ourselves. When we place I above Him, we read the Bible. We read the Bible probably to feel better about our lives or to read the Bible about the forgiveness of sins, which is a great truth. But when we place I above Him, we probably don't read the Bible expectantly and obediently. When we place I above Him, we act spiritual to gain something in return. When we place I above Him, we will be spiritually dry. We as Christians struggle with the issue of spiritual consumerism, of not submitting to God in every aspect of our life, but oftentimes we struggle to get from God rather than realizing what we have been given and what we can give. I knew a man at one time that was a spiritual consumer. But on the outside, from church members and appearances, he was and had all the marks of being a godly man. But then he went through a divorce. His daughters left him. He lost his job. He broke his ankle and his church split and blew up and then that man took out his contract that he had with God and he tore it up and has never followed Jesus since. Are you or are we in this life for I or for him? Because he has given us eternal life and he has changed our worlds that now because of the gospel our souls are no longer thirsty. Now because of the gospel we have a new stance with Jesus Christ, with God. That now we are a new creation, that we are children of God and now we are not our own but we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. That this life when we believe in Jesus Christ we are no longer should live for ourselves but for what we can give back to God in return. My point today is to admit to a spiritual consumerism and to believe in Christ in all aspects of our life. My purpose and my point and everything that I've arranged is so that we would just just take a look inside of our world, inside of the safe, inside of the dark closets that we like to hide and just see if in there somewhere that we are truly living for ourselves or if we are living for Jesus Christ. And if we are truly honest, we all have things that we live for ourselves. So then the question I have for each of us here this morning is question number one in my application. This is the section where I say, so what? How do we apply it to our life? My first question is, what is an area of our lives that we place I above Him? What is an area of our life that we place I above Him? And we all have it. I originally on Thursday thought about coming in here to the pulpit and coming up with a list of all of the things that I consume spiritually and put above Jesus Christ. And if you would like to see that list, just don't ask me for it. But moving on, okay. But we all have areas of our life that we place eye above Him. Is it your job? Is it your children? Is it your wife? Is it coming to church for the sake of appearances? 
do we place I above him when we read the Bible, thinking that everything is about me and not him? Do we place I above him when we pray and we always pray to gain something from God instead of asking what we can give to God? And then my second question today is, will we live with selfless faith? Will we live with selfless faith? Will we realize that in every aspect of our life that He is deserving to be our Lord and our Master, that we follow Him? That Jesus Christ is not just some magic genie that we rub, that we can get every wish we ever demanded. Jesus Christ is not the guy that comes in and makes us feel better about every aspect of our life or about the sin that we have in our lives. That Jesus Christ is the Savior of my soul and that He deserves and that He demands our worship and our following Him. And the third question I have is the question that He has today in John chapter 6. He says this in verse 27, Do not work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. And then He says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him in whom He has sent. I find that phrase in John chapter 6, verse 29 to be absolutely mind-blowing. That this is the work of God, that you believe in Him in whom He has sent. That God has arranged history. That God has arranged His Scripture. That God has arranged the Gospel of John so that we would believe in Him. That we would realize our insufficiency to save ourselves. That we would realize our desperate need in our, in our thirsty souls. And that we would reach out to the Savior to quench our souls and, and save us of our sin. That this is the work of God. That you believe in Him in whom He has sent. That God has arranged since the Garden of Eden. John chapter, Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. That He has arranged the events of history to unfold to us His redemptive plan. And what's amazing about this redemptive plan is that Jesus, God, gives it to us as a gift. You know, if I was God which I'm not, and we're all grateful for this. Okay, okay, all right. So I'm not even where close, okay. I'm very broken and sinful. But if I was God, and I had arranged history to redeem mankind, I would probably not give the gospel as a free gift. I would say, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to earn it. But God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, God, through His Son, through the payment of His Son's blood and death, God turns and gives us the gift of salvation, of eternal life, by faith, free of charge. But it cost Him the death of His Son, that if we would believe in Jesus Christ, then we would be saved, that our souls would be satisfied, would be quenched. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, I share this every week. If you have never believed in Him, then He offers you the gift of salvation that if you would believe in Him, that you would be saved. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you to see me after the service or Chris or any of the elders, and we would love to talk to you about it further. I will close with John chapter 6, verse 35. It says this, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you uh, for your scripture. 
What a magnificent message that you have given us in your scripture that this is the work of God that we would believe in you. And Lord, that we would believe in your Son and that we would have eternal life, eternal aliveness. Lord, that you have come to, to pay for my sin in the way I could never pay. And I cannot earn it. I cannot make it. I cannot build enough good works to reach heaven. And Lord, that you have given salvation to me as a gift. And Lord, I pray for this morning, if there are people in this room that think that they can be good enough, that think that, that, that they are saved because they have gone to church or because they have baptized, Lord, I pray that you would wake them up to the reality. That we are not saved by any works that we do, but we are saved by faith in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that we as Christians, that we would not be the crowds. That we would not live life thinking about what we want or what I want or the consumerism. Lord, that we would not come to church thinking about ourselves. But Lord, that we would come to church for others and for you. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you uh, that I can stand up here for a year and go through the Gospel of John. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for the permission to do that. Because only then do we really see the fruitfulness and the magnitude of your message that you have given to us through John 2,000 years ago. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those that are tuning in online. I pray that you would continue to protect them in the midst of this crazy time. And I pray that we have a great Thanksgiving. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.